Hello, I'm Aaron Lohr, and this is the Endocrine News Podcast. Welcome to our second episode in our Endocrine in the Time of COVID micro-series. Here we continue our conversation about COVID and diabetes care with Dr. Kathleen Dungan of the Ohio State University Division of Endocrinology, Diabetes, and Metabolism. Given the numerous devices that are out there, are staff and patients up to date on how to properly use CGMs and, and evaluate their data? Yes, there are a whole lot of unknowns here, and hospitals are starting to use these devices in a number of different ways. There are definitely some regulatory concerns, and they hold a rightful place, and the safe use of these devices should be first and foremost in in our minds, and I think also in in the minds of the patients um, in the hospitals. Firstly, we have started to use these devices in a hybrid model. So if you think about a critically ill patient, they have so many things going on that could affect the accuracy of a continuous glucose monitor, which is basically a filament that is inserted just under the skin and in the interstitium. And so what's going on in the interstitium from fluid shifts to rapid changes in glucose to changes in perfusion, that might be encountered in a patient with sepsis who's hypotensive, needing pressors, oxygenation, that can all potentially affect sensor accuracy. So even though we use them independently, insulin doses in the outpatient setting, in the critically ill patients, that's a whole another story. So in our hybrid model, what we have decided to do was to take a number of steps to first make sure that the sensor is in agreement with the meter glucose to some extent before we allow it to be used to dose insulin. And then also recognize that even if a sensor is you know, accurate at one point, it may drift depending on number of clinical factors um, later on. So we, we do still um, in this type of model once we've established that initial sensor accuracy, still have kind of a Q6 hour glucose monitoring strategy. And anytime there's an abrupt change in clinical status, say um, a patient just got intubated or just, you know, got started on vasopressors, then we would also do a finger stick to dose insulin. But our early findings are encouraging that um, we can, you know, establish this sensor accuracy in an individual patient and then use it to dose insulin on an hourly basis to adjust the insulin infusion, and then just periodically check as kind of a stopgap. The other safety feature is that we're using devices in these patients that give audible alerts so that the bedside nurse could be aware if the glucose level is dropping quickly and predicted to go low, or if the glucose is below a certain threshold. We're using a very conservative threshold of 100 milligram per deciliter. So that's not actually low, but at least gives us a cushion to identify any potential for hypoglycemia early on. And then the predictive alerts should help in that. Um, In general, there's some evidence that would suggest that 
a degree of inaccuracy is compensated by how frequently you're getting those measures, in this case, um, every five minutes. So that's the hybrid model. And, and thus far, we've had some very early experiences with that, and it seems to be working okay, but we'll see over time how that evolves. The continuous glucose monitors have been used in other ways also. So for patients who are awake and alert, they could use um, almost any home glucose monitor or continuous glucose monitor to adjust their dose of insulin. Again, with some safety parameters, I think since you have a hospitalized patient, periodic finger stick glucose monitoring or identify situations where the bedside nurse should go in and do a finger stick and not trust that value. And the devices all have some parameters that are specific to the device that can help to guide you in kind of setting up those criteria. One of the, the biggest barriers that we've seen is being able to stream the data in some way. While in a world without a firewall, that's fairly straightforward to stream the device to a phone and you can see your data at any time. But in this case, we want both the immediate bedside nurse to see the, the data but we also probably want our remote diabetes care teams to be able to see that data. And so that's been a bit of a challenge is trying to go through data use agreements or what kind of format might work for that. We've been able to use some secure Wi-Fi and be able to see data in that way. But it's a challenge and it will be a challenge moving forward. I do foresee in the future a day where we can see a glucose value up on that monitor, just like we see the heart rate, the O2 sat, and blood pressure. I don't think that's too unreasonable. Now, patients who come in with their own devices is another potential strategy that could be utilized in patients who are alert and oriented. But again, I think we still want to be mindful of some of those parameters where we want to have um, backup alerts. So to support all of this, we've developed some, you know, nursing guidance that really provides a very brief training skill sets. But I think, you know, in order to implement this hybrid model of glucose monitoring to adjust an insulin infusion, we really did need to provide that one-on-one, -on -one, just-in-time training. And the way we implemented was reaching out to our nursing leadership on units and identifying a champion and then building out from there. And we've found that it's not the same in all of the units. So we've been able to take advantage of our institution's procedures in uh, having these types of training documents available on a single website. So they can download not just the institution guidelines, but also quick point of care. Here's how we're going to be doing it at our hospital. And here's how you actually place a device and secure a device. And then also instructions for documentation, how to communicate that information in the electronic medical record. I understand that to prevent patients at higher risk for complications from COVID-19, you know, prevent them from coming into the hospital setting, that many are turning to telehealth. Um, what are some of the advantages? But also, I'd like to hear what are some of the challenges to this approach? The advantages are pretty straightforward because we can reach out to any patient almost anywhere and provide care. You know, in a patient who's in their home environment, we can even get some idea of what their home environment, and that provides some context in understanding what are the capabilities, motivations, and other competing factors that might impact 
their care or their ability to implement the recommendations that we might have. And we're also finding that with some restrictions in regulations that we can even provide that care across state lines where that wasn't typically the case previously. And we're often able to do it fairly efficiently. And some of this may be just because patients are home, but we have really very small no-show rates. So I think that's just a testament to the fact that patients still want care, still need care, and we can quickly get them in. However, there are some challenges, uh, certainly. The first was just establishing a workflow. So it can't just be that um, I've got a patient on my list, I'm going to call them, see how they're doing, and then hang up. Um, we really want to try to preserve that multidisciplinary approach, however that might look. So from the perspective of having a scheduling team um, to prepare the patients to actually contacting them, doing a medication reconciliation, identifying any kind of high-level concerns, pending prescriptions, things like that, that can make then the provider's visit still more efficient and allow you to, to really operate kind of at the top of your skill set. And then a process for follow-up. Is that patient going to come in for any lab work? If they live a long ways away, do we need to somehow send some orders or prescriptions in paper form? Are there educational materials that we can provide electronically versus in a written format? And then any kind of ancillary support that's needed so that the social workers, the diabetes educators, what does that look like? We've taken advantage of a lot of the technological features in our electronic medical record like no other time. And so there are some chat features that can really allow me to communicate with my nurse, even if I'm not in the same location, very quickly. So those are all sort of workflows that have developed over time. We've encountered some challenges in, in really helping patients to understand what they might expect as well from the perspective of a billing structure. Um, is my visit going to be covered? And it, thankfully, in the vast majority of cases, it's pretty much um, a similar billing experience. How to know how to check out, how to know how to communicate, or how they might get in that notification that they're ready for their visit. And understanding that you can still have delays in a video world, in fact, I would say we probably have more delays in some senses because we don't know quite how the technology is going to work out. And we can use different forms of technology. So we're finding if one platform doesn't work for whatever reason, another platform will. And so offering that kind of flexibility. We may contact patients and they may be driving or not have the understanding that, you know, if you're in the middle of lows or in the middle of a grocery store um, during your visit, that might not be the most optimal experience, but patients are still going about their lives. And so we're going back on an iterative basis to revisit our documents that we're using to prepare our patients and how we're, what processes we're using to inform them of what to expect. Now, the biggest challenge by far with our patients with diabetes has been how do we download their devices. So most of our patients are used to coming into clinic and having their device downloaded, maybe getting a point of care hemoglobin A1C at the same time. So we often have a wealth of information 
that we can use to make clinical decisions. So this has um, become challenging for many patients who may not understand how to download their devices or there might be other limitations. And we have temporarily been able to take advantage of our diabetes educators, but pretty much everyone's had to become an expert in how to download their device. And that's an ongoing process. I think moving forward, we can utilize this experience in our in-person visits, make sure that patients are linked appropriately to clinic accounts and providing that sort of ongoing um, education so that we can help sort of maximize the experience going forward for future telehealth. Certainly having a set of standardized instructions that we can send out to each patient based on their device is time-consuming, but in the end, it does make for a better experience when it does work well. Another factor that I think has been important is looking at other risk factors. So not only diabetes devices, but if a patient has other comorbidities, if they have high blood pressure, making sure that they have the ability to do home blood pressure monitoring. Those are all very critical um, aspects of comprehensive diabetes care. And many times uh, primary care providers are also managing that. Um, Encouraging lifestyle changes can be a little challenging during this time. And as patients have limited access to food, some patients are are dealing with um, limited access to their usual gym in creative ways and others not able to do so. So having that sort of nimble approach to how they can best provide their own self-care and then stress management has been a really big issue. Patients are confused, patients are scared, and learning how to kind of plug them into the appropriate resources. In terms of the follow-up issues, trying to coordinate their visits with labs, we do have some interfaces within our medical record system in which we can send, you know, lab work electronically to local labs and uh, other kinds of IT issues. Many states and even, you know, across the U.S. have public hotspots that provide high-speed internet access. So that's become part of our strategy is to make patients aware of those options that they can just, in many cases, drive up to a parking lot that, that has one of these public hotspots. And there are, you know, a number of, of resources online that accumulate which locations in your state or in your area um, might be available for that. Um, as I said before, learning about the different kinds of platform peculiarities Over time, I'm sure institutions will start to settle on maybe one or two platforms, but some of the peculiarities that we've come across is the need for multiple um, persons on the same platform who are practicing distantly with our learners, um, having a platform that will allow you to do three-way video calls or patients who need a translator. That's been a, a bit of a challenge, but we do have platforms now available that are easy for patients to use so they can just click on it once and get to the video call as long as they have the right technology. In terms of the education, we've had to reinvent how we provide education. This can be challenged in large groups because patients have different ways of accessing technology. They may not be active on email and many of these types of of group learning formats can only be accessed by programs like Zoom, uh, or WebEx or whatnot, and uh, that's pretty much through an email invitation. We've looked at ways where we could examine our, our education content and determine if some of it could be offered 
in that way. And some of it perhaps just in a recorded format as an electronic resource um, on our website. And so that's ongoing. I think that's been more of a challenge, more of a struggle. And we're finding that we're a little bit less efficient in not being able to provide those large group classes in the same way that we could previously. And then trying to provide education for advanced technologies through video obviously can also be challenging. We are, those are some of the first kind of in-person types of visits that we are um, opening up now to provide that sort of in-person hands-on training. One thing that everyone's always asking about when they think about COVID is there's what we're going through now, and then there's the world that emerges after COVID is behind us. How much is going to be changed forever? Do you think some of these new approaches that we've discussed today, like the increased use of telehealth, will change the future of diabetes care even after the pandemic is behind us? Yes, definitely. And we are currently even being asked to predict the future, if you will. And, and I think all, all of us are trying to, to predict what the new normal will be. And uh, I think definitely learning which patients can benefit most from the video visits is the most important. And, and perhaps what we still want to try to think through exactly what those patients look like and, and maybe um, having some sort of a, of a system for identifying those patients because um, oftentimes we're not the ones who are scheduling. It's an actual scheduler that's sitting um, somewhere else who doesn't maybe know the nuances of the patient. But I think we will definitely be um, continuing video visits to bridge that distance gap and also the time gap. And I think also it's well known that diabetes education and the care of an endocrinologist or a highly skilled diabetes team is just not available in all parts of the country. And, you know, even in cities, that availability just, just isn't there. And so we might envision some sort of a approach whereby we see a patient in person once a year to do their physical exam, do their foot exam, get all their lab work, and then periodic visits by video in between for sure. Well, this has been an absolutely fascinating discussion. I feel like you've given us a lot to think about. I just wanted to say thank you so much for being a part of, of the podcast. Oh, it's been my pleasure. Thank you for inviting me. And that's all for this episode. Be sure to tune in next time in our Endocrine in the Time of COVID micro series when we talk about health disparities with Dr. Joshua Joseph, Assistant Professor of Medicine at The Ohio State University Wexner Medical Center. And don't forget, Endo Online 2020 is happening right now and will end on June 22nd. Join the 25,000 who have already registered for this fascinating and complimentary meeting by registering at endocrine.org. Thanks for listening. Endocrine News Podcasts are a free service of the Endocrine Society. To learn more or to become a member, visit the Society's website at www.endocrine.org.